Hello, Discover here to explain our cash back match. Here's how it works. We give you cash back for using your Discover card on the things you were going to buy anyway. Then we match that cash back in your first year. And that's why we call it Cashback Match. Now to recap and say cash back one more time. We match all the cash back you've earned at the end of your first year automatically. Discover. Exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations apply. Light out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Lights Out. Today's episode, we are going to be diving deep into the sick, twisted, demented world of Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer is one of those people who I think intrigues all of us because of just how fucking crazy this guy is. And the things that he did are truly horrific and things of nightmares, truly. But before we get into Jeffrey Dahmer, I wanted to thank our sponsors today, Every Plate and Care Of for supporting the show really appreciate it as well as if you guys haven't checked out my other podcast the mile higher podcast i co-host that with my wife kendall ray and we cover true crime and conspiracies over there it's definitely more of a conversational podcast uh, going back and forth between us so i just wanted to throw that out there for all you new people that have come to lights out if you have never checked out the mile higher podcast highly recommend you do we definitely get into some pretty interesting discussion over there so if you haven't checked us out I'll put the links down below for you guys. So our story with Jeffrey Dahmer begins when he was born on May 21st, 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin to parents Joyce and Lionel Dahmer. Now Jeffrey was their first child and the pregnancy for his mother was very difficult because she had developed seizure-like symptoms, which the doctors really couldn't explain. Now the doctors tried to prescribe her some different medications like barbiturates as well as morphine to try and help, you know, figure out what was going on with her and hopefully ease her symptoms. This is particularly interesting because some people believe that perhaps the medications that she was on may have somehow affected the pregnancy and may have had some sort of effect on Jeffrey. Again, there's not really any proof or actual connection there from what I could find, but it is an interesting thing to note. Now, as a toddler, Jeffrey was a pretty normal kid. He was happy, high-spirited, energetic. I mean, your typical toddler. He loved to play with toys. He loved to, you know, play with stuffed bunnies and help his father with different things. And there was even one point in which Jeffrey and his father actually nursed an injured bird back to health. And it wasn't until age four when he underwent surgery to correct a double hernia when things seemed to change with him. It's like he became a different person. The reason for thinking this is because his whole demeanor seems to change as he gets older and he transformed from this lively, joyful child into this quiet, withdrawn person. He really became a loner, I guess is the best way you could describe it. He was definitely alone a lot and, you know, didn't really have a lot of attention from anybody else or his parents. In 1966, the Dahmer family moved to Doylestown, Ohio, where Lionel had found a job as a chemist. And at this point in time, Jeffrey had just started the first grade and Joyce gave birth to a second son named David. Once his brother was born, it seemed like a lot of his parents' attention then, you know, moved away from Jeffrey to his brother. But the main thing that happened was that his parents really started fighting with each other. They had a lot of marital issues. So that really had an effect on Jeffrey. 
And because of his parents' relationship, as well as the birth of his brother, he continued to become, you know, more isolated, increasingly distant and shy. Just like with any child, if your parents' relationship is not good and it's tumultuous and, you know, there's constant drama going on and arguments going on, it's going to have an effect on a child. And his parents' relationship really had a great effect on him. It caused him a lot of stress and anxiety and he felt like he was losing control of his family relationships. And because of this, he started to shut down and act apathetically in order to push away his negative thoughts and feelings. And not staying in one place for too long, the family once again moved into a new house in 1967. There, Jeffrey met a boy named Lee in his new neighborhood, and they quickly became close friends. However, at only seven years old, Jeffrey started displaying troubling, vengeful behavior towards his friend. One day, he brought a bowl full of tadpoles into school and gave it to his favorite teacher. When he discovered that she had later given them to Lee, he went over to Lee's house and killed the tadpoles by pouring motor oil in their water. Now, I just want to stop and think about this for a second. He's already killing things, for one. He's already killing animals by age seven, and probably earlier than that. But the fact that he knew to go get motor oil and put it into water at age seven in order to kill tadpoles is very interesting to me because that makes me think that he had already seeked out information on how to kill things. And I think that information probably came from his father. What's interesting about Jeffrey's father is that Jeffrey's father later admitted to having homicidal feelings of his own growing up and throughout his life. So it's very interesting that it seems that information is being passed to Jeffrey and at a very young age, because how else would he know how to kill tadpoles with motor oil? I mean, who would know that at seven? Would you know that at seven, Joel? No, I wouldn't even think about something like that if I was seven years old. And what else is interesting, how, you know, you mentioned the father, uh, his mother also struggled with depression a lot to a point where she would actually withdraw herself from family activities. So it seems like both his mom and his dad were struggling maybe with some mental illness of some sort. I 100% agree with that because we know that mental illness can run in the family. Depression can run through the family. So it would make sense. And a lot of people always refer to Jeffrey's mom as kind of a loon, like kind of this crazy lady that, you know, wasn't all there. So it it definitely makes you wonder, you know, how normal of a childhood did he really have? Because it seems like everybody that likes to say he had a perfectly normal childhood, you know, his parents were religious, they believed in God and, you know, they went to church and all of that. But it really makes you think, what was really going on there at home. I mean, if there's marital issues there, we don't know exactly what's being said. And, you know, they've never divulged how bad things were as far as I know. So I don't know. It definitely makes you wonder about all that. But then in 1968, Lionel Dahmer relocated his family to Bath, Ohio, changing homes for the third year in a row. There's another thing that's going to have an impact on a young child is moving around. And that's definitely not going to help with those loner feelings. I mean, if you're constantly being uprooted and move to a different place, different town, different school, it's going to be very difficult to continue to make friends, especially if you're somebody like Jeffrey, because he's already kind of introverted and, you know, doesn't really actively seek out friendships and things like that. So moving around was definitely really tough on him. I mean, Joel and I moved around a ton, so him and I can definitely relate to this. Yeah, I totally agree. Moving around multiple schools every few years or so 
can be very hard on anybody. I mean, just because everyone wants to fit in once they're in, in a new environment. And for Jeffrey, somebody who's already introverted, doesn't have many social skills, I can only imagine how hard that was for him. And he might have not even been able to make many friends as is. So when he goes home, his parents weren't there for him as much as they should have been, be able to talk to him about everything. Because his dad, he worked so much. He had a PhD in, you know, in chemistry, and he was never at the house for the most part. And his mom was there and did support him, but she mentally wasn't there uh, to provide those things for him. Yeah, that's one of the, the biggest thing with this and with Jeffrey is that he didn't really have that parental relationship that a young child needs and a younger person needs. You need to be able to communicate with your parents. You need to be able to be open and honest with them. And I think obviously we know that Jeffrey is homosexual. And so dealing with homosexuality at a young age, when especially, you know, your parents aren't going to agree with it, you are being told that it's wrong and it's bad. You're going to start bottling that up inside. And I I think that's really where the root of the issue lies with Jeffrey is that he starts bottling things up inside of him from a very, very young age because he has nobody to talk to. He doesn't have any, any friends really to discuss these deep things with. He can't go to his parents because he's worried about what his parents are going to think. And not only that, he's already into killing animals and things like that. So who do you go talk to about things like that other than your parents? And if your parents aren't there for you, then who else is there? There's really nobody else. So you just internalize it. And that's exactly what he does is he just buries it all deep within himself. After this last move, Jeffrey really started becoming fascinated with dead animals and he would go around and collect them. He'd go and collect roadkill and he would start examining them. And he really found it interesting to start taking the animals apart, dissecting them, looking at the innards of the different animals. And eventually he discovered how to use acid to strip bones clean of flesh which I assume he got the acid because his dad had the acid, which I'm like, what's his dad doing with, you know, acid at the house when he's got a young kid and stuff like, and how come he has access to this? This is super dangerous stuff. I mean, this stuff is corrosive. It will eat away at anything it touches. So it's very interesting to me, like the fact he had access to this, you know, he had, he was playing around with acid and dead animals and his parents were like, that's kind of (laughs) concerning. Like, I don't know. That to me is just super interesting. At one point, Jeffrey even skewered a dog's head on a stake, which obviously doing things like this is going to make you super introverted and socially disengaged. And the more and more he did this, the more gruesome the experiments got. And then when he hit his teenage years to couple all of this playing with dead animals, he started drinking at a young age. By the time he was 14 years old, Jeffrey had started as a freshman at Revere High School. And that same year, he had his first homosexual experience. Being gay, however, was strongly looked down upon and not accepted in the towns where Jeffrey grew up, which I can only imagine. You know, I I know firsthand from growing up in a small town that in a lot of those places, it definitely leans more conservative, religious. And so if you are homosexual or gay or have, you know, different sexual preferences, oftentimes you can be bullied for that. You can be uh, discriminated against. And I saw both of those in the small town that I grew up in. So I totally believe that you know, he's moving around. That's hard enough. But then on top of that, he's also gay and he's having to deal with all the ridicule he's getting for that. That's got to be really hard. So, you know, he's trying to figure out ways to, I guess, make himself happy and, you know, kind of figure out what he likes to do and what 
his fantasies are. And that's when things just start turning for the worse here. Because around 14, 15 years old, Jeffrey Dahmer has said himself that this is when things really just turned very dark for him. And he started having necrophiliac fantasies at this age, which inspired morbid thoughts and compulsions that he would try to suppress but fail. At school, other students saw Jeffrey as a loner with an alcohol problem. He was known to bring liquor to class and would get drunk regularly. And despite his habit, he participated in a select few extracurricular activities. He used to play tennis and he worked for the school newspaper. He received positive attention from some of his classmates by clowning around, pulling pranks. He acted out so often that practical jokes at a school became known as doing a Dahmer. However, despite trying to play off all of this as just playful humor and, you know, kind of the jokester of the class, a former classmate of his believed that all of this was because of his alcoholism. And he's quoted as saying he was becoming sort of a lost person. And if anybody knows or has, you know, struggled with alcohol addiction or has, you know, started drinking at a young age, you're just not at a place mentally and just not developed enough to really deal with the, you know, what happens after you drink and after you get drunk. And when you're that young, it can really start to just screw with your head and really start to, you know, cause you to go down some paths that you wouldn't have otherwise gone down if you hadn't had been drinking or consuming any substance for that matter at that young of an age. Cause you're so impressionable at that age. I mean, you're still trying to figure shit out. You're just, you know, you're just trying to stay on the right path and it's so easy to get taken down another one. And I think all of these factors, I mean, if you're starting to see it, it's kind of like this perfect storm working against Jeffrey Dahmer. Like he's got all these different things that are all playing into him and who he's becoming as a human and unfortunately, all of the things combined are taking him down the darkest, most evil path that you could possibly go down. By the time Jeffrey had turned 18 years old, his parents' marriage was not in a good place. And Jeffrey was often left home alone after his father had moved out and his mother took his brother to live with relatives. And he found himself living in a state of near complete privacy and he would take terrible advantage of that. Jeffrey would later explain how he had the window of opportunity to finally act on the pervasive thoughts he had for so long. Quote, It started gradually. I had been having for a good few years fantasies of meeting a good-looking hitchhiker and sexually enjoying him. I never thought it would really happen, but everything was set up so perfectly at one time in Ohio which that quote really puts everything into perspective for you. I mean, he was fantasizing about having these sexual experiences with, you know, different types of people from a very young age. And I think because of the environment he grew up in and the fact that he was never open and honest with anybody about his sexuality, that he, you know, he bottled all that up inside and that coupled with this also strange fascination of dead animals and, obviously cutting them open and pulling out their insides. I think those, the two of them together really played to his disadvantage, obviously, and lead to him committing his first murder on the night of June 18th, 1978, just a few weeks after Jeffrey Dahmer had finished high school, he was driving home and he came across a hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks. The two men were pretty close in age. Jeffrey had recently turned 18 and Stephen was just nearing 19 years old. 
and Stephen had been on his way to a rock concert in nearby Lockwood Corners. Jeffrey invited the hitchhiker back to his parents' house to drink and to smoke pot, and Stephen obviously accepted that. He was like, sure, that sounds great. So the two ended up hanging out, listening to music, and getting drunk together. And when Stephen got up to leave a few hours later, Jeffrey was all of a sudden overcome with this all-consuming sense of fear and frustration at the thought of being abandoned by his new companion. So in response to Stephen wanting to leave, Jeffrey grabs a dumbbell, bashes Stephen in the head with it. He then uses the bar in order to strangle him. Jeffrey later explained that the violent murder occurred because he simply did not want the man to go, saying, quote, he was attractive. I was attracted to him. I didn't know how else to keep him there other than to get the barbell and to hit him with it over the head. Which, that's not rational at all. It's not a logical, rational thing, obviously, to kill somebody to keep them around. So it just shows you where at such a young age, at 18 years old, he's already at this point of desperation, it seems like, where he's like, the only way that I can ensure that I have a partner that's going to, you know, sexually satisfy me as well as just be a companion for me as if they stay here with me. And, and because every other encounter, you know, sexually and just friend wise in his prior life had gone so bad that he was already at this point where he was like, I will do anything to just have somebody here. And I don't care if they're alive or dead. And it clearly shows that Jeffrey was stuck in this fantasy land I mean, with any friendship, obviously, at some point in the night, you're going to have to part ways. And to Jeffrey, he saw that as like, this is the last time I'm going to see this guy. So he has to stay here with me against his will. And I just think that's really like fucked up. Yeah, it's fucked up. That is super fucked up to to just f- kill your friend, your new friend and keep him there for your own pleasure. It just shows you that he's already not right in the head because after he killed Steven, he already bashed him over the head, choked him out, killed him with the dumbbell. He then stripped him naked and then masturbated on his body. And then after, you know, he finished that, he realized, holy shit, what did I just do? I just killed my friend and now I need to deal with this. So he had to figure out how to dispose of the evidence of his crime. So Jeffrey takes the corpse of Stephen down into the crawl space where he dismembered him and then packed his remains into plastic bags, which he buried in the backyard. See that, that to me just tells you that he's way far gone at this point. I mean, he's already comfortable enough to start dismembering a human body. And that's so much different than an animal in a lot of senses. I mean, big difference there. You know, hunters dismember animals when they go hunting, you know, in order to harvest the meat. So that to me is different from dismembering a human body. And that's what Jeffrey Dahmer was already doing at 18 years old. And he, you know, he probably was nervous or scared about it or maybe not, but the fact that he did it was just absolutely wild. Dr. Park Dietz, the forensic psychiatrist, later called to judge Jeffrey's sanity 
discovered through his consultations with the murderer that the sheen of viscera and organs aroused him and amplified the enjoyment he received from cutting apart the bodies. Which the way that I understand this too is that the sheen of viscera kind of resembles the attraction that people have to satin or, you know, uh, any type of smooth fabric, you know, how that smooth fabric can turn you on or latex or leather, you know, how some people are into that kind of porn or something like that. The actual shiny fabricy substance and apparently viscera, like when you look at organs like that has that same type of shininess to it. So it can actually cause that same type of reaction for a human and get them sexually excited, which is fucking crazy to think about. But this is what happened with Jeffrey. Jeffrey was afraid that the remains of Stephen would be found. So he ended up digging up parts of the body a few weeks later, and he ended up removing the flesh from the bones before dissolving it in acid. He then took the bones and smashed them into fragments with a sledgehammer and then strewed them across a wooded area behind his home. Stephen would be the first of Jeffrey's 17 victims, and although it would be nine years before Jeffrey killed again, the nature of murder exhibited the extreme need for control that would define his later serial killings. So after the murder of Stephen, Jeffrey tried to forget the crime and distance himself from his homicidal drive, his urge to kill, his urge to have sex with dead bodies, that necrophiliac fantasies that he had. Jeffrey's father, Lionel, returned to the family home with his new fiance in August, unaware of what occurred there in his absence. And in the fall of 1978, Jeffrey started classes at Ohio State University. However, his alcoholism caused him to neglect his studies and his grades plummeted. He dropped out after just a few months. What's interesting about Jeffrey Dahmer is that it's been speculated and, you know, he's never taken an IQ test officially, I don't believe, but Many say that his IQ would be something equal to 145, which is almost a genius level on the IQ scale. So Jeffrey Dahmer is definitely a smart individual. So he really should have done well at school and probably would have if he hadn't had been dealing with alcoholism. Because after only attending school for a few months, he actually dropped out. And with his father's encouragement, Jeffrey then enlisted in the army and was sent to Germany to serve as a combat medic. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's a guy that dismembered another human being joined the army and became a combat medic. Can you imagine the people that had Jeffrey Dahmer working on them or, you know, helping them in the army? That's absolutely terrifying. It's really crazy to think about such an ironic job for him to do. And honestly, I think he def- he probably chose that job on purpose. I would imagine that because he had the fascination with the human body and everything, I think my gut feeling is that he probably pursued the combat medic role for sure. He was stationed abroad from 1979 until 1981 when he was discharged for his drinking habit, which had spiraled out of control. Two fellow soldiers would later report that Jeffrey had sexually assaulted them while they were serving in the military together. Oh, man. You can only imagine what kind of creep he was in the army. I'm sure people were fucking looking over their shoulder when he was around. But upon leaving the military, he chose to fly to Florida instead of returning home out of the shame of having to face his father. He could not avoid his family for too long, however. And after a brief and unsuccessful stint living and working in Miami Beach, he returned to Ohio. 
And not long after coming home, Jeffrey was arrested for drunk and disorderly conduct at Ramada Inn. And his father decided that because of Jeffrey's repeated delinquency, it would be best if his son went to stay with his grandmother, who was a kind church going woman that lived in West Allis, Wisconsin. So in 1982, Jeffrey moved in with grandma and boy, does grandma have no idea what's about to happen at her house. Oh man, it's crazy. Once he was there, he began attending church with his grandma in an attempt to push away his sexual necrophiliac and violent fantasies. And despite his efforts to keep them at bay, his compulsion returned and he began drinking again, finding that these thoughts are very powerful, very destructive, and they do not leave. And Jeffrey proved unable to control himself. And I think he did say like it church was kind of working for him a little bit for a little while, but I mean, it, it works for everybody for a little while, you know, until you, right. you really get in deep with it and you start realizing whether or not, you know, this is for you or not. So at the initial phase, you kind of get that good feeling and probably, you know, a little bit of spiritual shit happening on, on the inside with him. But those urges, man, way too strong because Jeffrey was arrested again in September of 1986 after he masturbated in front of two 12-year-old boys by a river. That is crazy. And and the fact that, again, Jeffrey Dahmer throughout his life has lots of contacts with police, is arrested, and yet police never connect him to the murders that he's done. And at this point, he's only done the murder of Stephen at this point. So the fact that who's looking for Steven? It doesn't seem like anybody's really looking for Steven because they don't even have a suspect. They haven't even narrowed down that maybe it could have been this guy that had been, you know, last seen with him. It's really crazy because this is another story of where the police really just have no clue what the fuck's going on. But Jeffrey claimed that he was simply urinating and the original charge of lewd and lavicious behavior was lowered to disorderly conduct. And as a result, he only received one year of probation. Jeffrey continued trying to find nonviolent releases for his desires. So he joined the gay scene in Milwaukee and frequented nightclubs, bars, and bathhouses to find sexual companionship. Late at night, after the clubs closed, he visited the bathhouses where he hooked up and had sex with other men. That's so wild. I don't even know of any bathhouses in Denver. I don't like, either. <laughs> is there any place like that here where that's open later than the bars. Like, no, I, I know there's places that are, you know, places you can go and, you know, have orgies and things like that. I've definitely know those exist out there, but I don't know of any bathhouses in Denver at all. It's very interesting that Milwaukee had this, but as much as he enjoyed his times at the bathhouses, he grew to dislike the brief nature of these encounters, which were all one night stands. And he wished for a different kind of intimacy where he had someone to spend whole nights with, snuggling and caressing one another. Most importantly, he wanted partners that he can enjoy without having them to ask him for anything. So that need to control other people rose to the surface again. So in order to increase his level of control over other people, Jeffrey started drugging men's drinks and he'd put basically a Valium in their drink, which would render them unconscious. And at that point, he would rape them. Jeffrey would later state, quote, It was the only way I knew to keep them there and to keep them with me. It gave me a sense of control and increased the sexual thrill. 
I trained myself to view people as objects of potential pleasure instead of seeing them as complete human beings. Sounds callous, and it is, but that's what I did. Selfish is what it is. Selfish because he's not thinking about the other individual and it's not helping him cope with anything at all. It's making things worse because he's now taking a human being and reducing them to an object pretty much. They're just an object that's there to fulfill his desires sexually. That's all these men are. And once you completely disassociate people with uh, being a human, being a conscious living entity, and you reduce them to an object, that's when things get really scary because then you start tricking yourself into thinking that, okay, this person's not real. They don't think for themselves. They don't have a life, a consciousness. They don't have any of that. They're just here to serve me. And if they're just an object, then you know why can't I kill an object? So it's that reduction of life that he does that really just, I think, leads him down that very, very scary road he gets on. He also mentioned that he preferred to drug his victims so that they were unconscious because apparently he got way more satisfaction raping them as opposed to having their consent before they had sex. Well, again, you have to remember that it's control for him. He's a control freak. He wants to control every situation. And he even said, I mean, he didn't want to do certain things to the partner that he was with if they wanted him to, you know, do one thing. And he was like, no, I don't want to do that. And so that would spoil the night per se. Like it would, things would not go his way. And then he'd end up being angry and pissed off because it, the encounter did not go the way that he planned. So rather than kind of play along and go the consensual route where you have to kind of cater to the other person's needs, he said, fuck that. I'm going to be selfish and I'll just drug people because that's the quick and easy way for me to get all the control in the situation. And that's exactly what he did. And that's why, you know, once you do that, you really, you know, you get a sense of what that's like and you start just continuing to want that and more of that control. And that's exactly what Jeffrey did. There was one incident that really freaked Jeffrey out. One night in the summer of 1987, Jeffrey overdrugged his victim and he ended up having to call the paramedics because he thought he had killed him. And because of this, he was consequently banned from the bathhouses in Milwaukee. In another failed attempt at achieving gratification, Jeffrey saw intimacy with a mannequin. He actually like sneaked into a department store, waited till the store closed, and then stole a male mannequin to bring home with him. Cause I think after he got caught, you know, he overdrugged somebody. He was like, fuck, like, you know, maybe I'm going to try to correct my behavior. And instead of using real people, I'll try a mannequin and see how that works. And he would bring his mannequin that he stole in his bed in his grandmother's basement. And he'd pretend that it was alive. He undressed it. He cuddled it. He made love to it. And very quickly he realized that this mannequin could not completely fulfill his needs. So he eventually threw out the mannequin because his grandmother discovered it. And I'm sure that was a fucking weird conversation. Like, why do you have a fucking mannequin from a department store? You know, but that was very weird. But all these different efforts that he makes in order to try to, you know, steer his behavior away and his urges away from actual human beings and onto, you know, inanimate objects and things that aren't real just did not work for him. And Jeffrey made a ton of attempts to try and sort of 
correct his behavior and steered away from real humans and go with inanimate objects. But he quickly realized that none of these things really fulfilled his sadistic sexual impulses that he had. And by that fall, he would commit his next murder. On November 20th, 1987, Jeffrey met 25-year-old Stephen Twomey at a bar, and they ended up going to the Ambassador Hotel together. He had planned to give Stephen a drug drink like he had done so many times before at the bathhouse so that he could obviously take advantage of him when he became unconscious. However, Jeffrey ended up blacking out after potentially giving himself some of the drug in his own glass and could not recall the previous night's events. But when he woke up the next day, he found Stephen dead. And he quickly realized that he had beaten him to death with his fists and he had no recollection of it whatsoever because Stephen was covered in bruises, he had broken ribs, and he had blood coming out of the corner of his mouth. Jeffrey's forearms were also bruised, which is obviously indications of a struggle and he could not remember a single part of it. Frantically, he tried to hide all signs of the murder and he actually went out and bought a large suitcase and then he ended up stuffing Stephen's body into it and brought him back to his grandmother's house. Once back at his grandmother's house, he then hid the suitcase with the corpse inside the fruit cellar under the house. And one week later, while his grandmother was at church, Jeffrey went down to the cellar, removed Stephen's flesh from his bones, and wrapped it in plastic. He then placed the skeleton in a bedsheet, and just like he had done with Stephen Hicks, smashed the bones into small pieces with the sledgehammer. Once he had completed this dismemberment, he placed the remains in the trash for the Monday morning pickup. What's crazy to me and what I don't understand about this is how did Jeffrey dismember a human body, flesh from all the bones? What happened to all the blood? How did he do this so cleanly to where his grandmother didn't notice that somebody got dismembered in her basement? Like that's what's so crazy to me is how does he get away with this shit for so long? How is there no traces of anything? Yeah, that's a great point. Like what did Jeffrey do with the blood? I mean, if he dumped it down any of the drains in the home, then that'd be really hard to cover up any kind of stains or any kind of mess that was made from that. And not only that, what about the stench from the body? Uh, I feel like that would be overpowering, even though it was done in the basement that anyone who walks in the front door of the house could get a whiff of some very vile smell. Yeah, I would imagine there's probably some sort of smell, but what really doesn't make sense to me is how did he dismember an entire human in a matter of hours while grandma's at church? How long is grandma at church for? Can't be more than a couple hours. Like who goes to church all day? Like nobody does that. So you're telling me that he went down there and in a matter of a few hours, completely dismembered and cleaned up this horrific mess in the basement unless grandma just didn't go down into the basement in the fruit cellar or whatever i don't even know what the fuck that means what's a fruit cellar put your fruit down there (laughs) so you know maybe that cover up the smell the fruit down there it doesn't make any sense i i find it really hard to believe because even surgeons i mean it is difficult to dismember a human, let alone amputate a limb or something like that. It takes serious hardware to do that. And I think he definitely had the right tools for the job. And I I guess it is possible for him to do that in a couple hours. But the fact that he was able to do this without and avoid detection is just truly mind blowing. 
it, it's it's really hard to fathom being able to work so quickly and completely break down a human, get rid of their blood, package it all up, smash up a skull, and put it all in the trash, all in a matter of a couple hours. But this second murder of the second Stephen really just unleashed that inner demon that he had that was feeding him these urges. And it was from that point on that he knew he had a craving, a hunger. And he said, I just kept doing it, doing it, and doing it. Whenever the opportunity presented itself, it was an incessant and never-ending desire to have someone at whatever cost and someone good-looking. Jeffrey's next victim was James Dockstader, a 14-year-old boy who had met outside of a gay bar. On the night of January 16, 1988, Jeffrey invited James back to his grandmother's house, saying he would pay him to model for photographs and offered him some alcohol. James agreed, and at Jeffrey's house, the two had sex, and afterward, Jeffrey gave James a drug to drink. And once the boy fell asleep, Jeffrey strangled him to death. Following the same strategy that he had used to dispose of the other victim's corpses, Jeffrey cut away the flesh from the boy's bones, which he then smashed with a sledgehammer. And once they were pulverized, he put James's remains in the trash. Just a few months later after that, on March 24, 1988, Jeffrey picked up 22-year-old Richard Guerrero outside of a gay bar and took him back to his grandmother's home. The two had oral sex, and then mirroring his last killing, Jeffrey drugged Richard with sleeping pills and then strangled him to death. He then had sex with Richard's corpse before repeating his established method of dismembering the body and throwing it in the garbage. One Saturday night in April, not even a month after killing Richard, Jeffrey approached a man named Ronald Flowers outside of Club 219. Ronald had left the club around 1.15 a.m. to find out that his car wouldn't start. And after watching him struggle with his vehicle, Jeffrey walked up and offered Ronald a hand. He said the two could go back to his house and they'd bring back another car in order to jump Ronald's battery. Ronald accepted and went with Jeffrey back to his grandmother's house. And while there, the two stopped for a quick cup of coffee. And Ronald noticed, quote, he was staring at me in a way that was scary. It was almost as if he was waiting for something to happen. All of a sudden, something did happen. Ronald became overwhelmingly dizzy and was struck with a flash of terror before falling to the floor unconscious. Although Jeffrey intended to murder Ronald after the sleeping pill kicked in, he changed his plan once he realized that his grandmother knew that he had brought a guest home. So instead, he dropped Ronald off at a hospital where the drugged man woke up the next day with a ligature mark on his neck and his underwear was inside out. Horrified, Ronald immediately reported to the police that Jeffrey had drugged and sexually assaulted him. When questioned by officers, Jeffrey lied, saying he and Ronald were drinking together all night. He claimed that they were in a relationship and had had an argument, so he sent Ronald home on a bus, and that was the last he saw of him. His deceit proved successful as the police dismissed Ronald's complaint. They didn't even believe him. Unaware of the killings that were occurring in her home, Jeffrey's grandmother grew tired of him bringing strangers over at night, so she and his dad pressed Jeffrey to move out. And that's when Jeffrey moved into an apartment in Milwaukee. 
where he intended to continue his killing spree. That's what's so crazy about Jeffrey is that he's so well-spoken when he was questioned by police. I mean, I feel like there was enough evidence with that particular situation for the police to have some valid claims. I mean, that guy's underwear was inside out. I mean, he woke up in a hospital just out of the ordinary type of stuff after he spent time with Jeffrey and maybe just after a quick talk over with him, he was just somehow able to convince them that, oh no, everything's fine. You know, nothing happened. And a lot of people who knew Jeffrey saw him as just a very witty, out, you know, outspoken individual uh, who could basically talk his way out of anything. Master manipulator, man. Smart. That's how serial killers often are. In order to get away with shit like this for so long, you have to be smart and witty. You got to be able to fool everybody. And Jeffrey had the looks. That's the thing about Jeffrey is by a first glance at him, he looks like a totally normal guy. You would never suspect the insane things that he did. And that really, and he was white too. And he preyed on minorities because he knew at that period in time that the people that he preyed upon were most likely not going to be believed by police. And oftentimes they weren't even going to be looked for by people. Nobody would miss them. So he really thought through, you know, his victims on who he was going to take advantage of. So that's all serial killer things. You know, it's all things that serial killers do. They really are meticulous about how they operate. And Jeffrey was for a very long time. Only one day after moving into his new place, Jeffrey came across 13 year old Sumsack synthesomophone and Jeffrey approached the boy as he was walking home from school with the proposition of paying him $50 to model for some photographs. Somsack agreed and went back to Jeffrey's apartment and back at the apartment, Jeffrey started snapping pictures and after he snapped one picture, Jeffrey suggested that the photos would be better if they were taken in the nude. He then unzipped the boy's pants and touched his penis. Terrified, Somsack realized that he had to leave. However, before he had the chance, Jeffrey put his ear to Somsack's stomach, saying that he wanted to listen to it. After a few moments, he turned his head and started kissing it. And obviously, this is scaring the shit out of Somsack. So he mustered all of his strength and despite having been drugged, ran out of the building. Because Somsack was able to get out when he did, Jeffrey was arrested and charged with second-degree sexual assault. But even though Jeffrey was arrested and charged with second degree of sexual assault, he posted bond while he awaited his sentencing at his grandmother's house. He pled guilty to the crime, claiming that he believed Somsack to be older than he really was. And at the trial, he was extremely remorseful, expressing regret for his deplorable actions and convinced the court that he wanted to change. However, clearly he was just putting on a performance in front of the judge and jury and he really didn't want to change. On March 25th, 1989, while waiting for the verdict, he brought home 24-year-old aspiring model Anthony Lee Sears, who he had met at a gay bar, once again under the pretense that he would pay him to model for photographs. And again, just like routine, Jeffrey drugged Anthony after they had sex and strangled him. He then had sex with his body before dismembering the corpse and disposing of it. However, he kept Anthony's skull and genitals as trophies. 
what's fucking crazy about this is I believe Anthony's skull and genitals, he actually put into a box, a metal lockbox. And I believe he brought this metal lockbox with him a lot of places. I mean, he kept it in his room for the most part, but he actually, I believe, brought this box with this head and genitals in it to his work because he felt like he wanted to have Anthony there with him. It's just so fucking sick. But during this whole time while he's doing all these heinous murders out of his fucking grandma's house, he is a master at hiding his activities and intentions to other people, especially his family. And during a visit with his father and grandmother recorded in a home video, he casually speaks about living in his apartment, his hopes of having them come visit and his diet of eating McDonald's food. And we'll just play that little clip for you. You look good though, you look nice and trim. Oh, that's good to hear. You I look mean, like you're working out. No, no, I've been surviving on McDonald's food mm-hmm. for, you know, since I moved down there. Mm-hmm. And of course, you woke up at what, eight this morning? Right. And then you, you cleaned up your apartment really nicely so you could show us what it looks like. Yeah, I want you to come over <laughs> if you feel like it. It's, it. I haven't done any dusting or vacuuming or anything. I do that on Sundays. But, uh-huh. uh, Jeffrey really had this ability to come across sincere and apologetic during any sort of court appearance. So when he had his hearing for the sexual assault he committed, he acted exactly like that. And because of it, he was only given a year-long sentence in a house of correction with work release to be followed by a five-year probation period. And although Jeffrey's father, Lionel, wrote a letter imploring the court not to release Jeffrey without first giving him psychological help and treatment, the judge granted him an early release after he only had served 10 months. And once out, Jeffrey briefly stayed at his grandmother's house again before moving into the now infamous Unit 213 in the Oxford Apartments building in Milwaukee on May 14th, 1990. Before we talk about the unspeakable horrors that went on in apartment 213, I'd like to tell you about our sponsors today. This year, make your holiday dreams come true at TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and HomeGoods. The shelves are super stocked and the prices totally rock. Cashmere sweater for mom? Check. A remote control car? Check. The perfect handmade chessboard for your genius BFF? Check and mate. And that's just the beginning. Stores near you are packed with amazing gifts, so you'll spend less and gift better. Endless selection, great prices all season long at your TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Home Goods. 11. So in May of 1990, Jeffrey is now living in Unit 213 in the Oxford Apartment Building. And according to Jeffrey's neighbor, Vernell Bass, who lived in apartment 214 across the hall, the area where Oxford Apartments is located is considered to be, you know, a rougher part of town. It was a predominantly black neighborhood and Jeffrey was the only single white man living in the area. And in retrospect, Vernell realized that Jeffrey's decision to live there was strategic because the police's attention was almost solely focused on drug deals. There's a lot of drug activity there. It was almost like Jeffrey knew that he could hide in plain sight in that apartment complex. When Jeffrey first moved in, however, the building's fellow occupants were unsuspecting and found the new resident to be seemingly normal easygoing person who mainly kept to himself. On May 20th, 1990, just a few days after relocating, Jeffrey brought home Raymond Smith, also known as Ricky Beeks. Once again, he drugged and strangled his victim, 
Jeffrey had also purchased a Polaroid camera, which he used to take pictures of Ricky's corpse in sexual positions before he dismembered the body, a process he also documented in the photographs. It's hard to understand why anybody would let alone dismember somebody, but then also take photographs of it. And according to Jeffrey, he did this because it was kind of like allowing him to keep those people with him and kind of keep those memories with him, I guess. I mean, I don't know why you'd want to keep that with you, but that's why he took snapshots of what he did. It seems like a way that, you know, he could relive those experiences whenever he looked at those photos. Maybe it brought him back to every moment that he spent with that person. Yeah, and honestly, it probably brought back those sexual feelings. You know, obviously he gets turned on by dismembering people. So I assume that the photographs are for sexual reasons. Because the snapshots did not stop there. He ended up taking pictures of all the remaining victims that he had. Jeffrey also kept Ricky's skull as a memento. And realizing that he was unhappy wasting the bodies of those he murdered, he entertained the delusion that they could live on inside of him if he cooked and ate their flesh. So he tried a piece from Ricky's bicep, consuming it while looking at the photograph of the murdered man. Jeffrey later explained his cannibalistic turn, divulging, quote, There's no way of saying it without sounding gruesome. I don't know how to describe it. You've had filet mignon, haven't you? Very tender. It did give me some satisfaction. Made it feel like they were more of a part of me. It's fucking sick. Sick. Oh, totally. I don't understand. I will never understand cannibalism. I really don't. And if it's, if what he's saying is true as far as how he thinks about it, that he legitimately feels like they're now a part of him because he ate the person. I don't think I'll ever be able to wrap my head around that. It's just so fucking sick. But Jeffrey killed again on June 24th, 1990 when he brought 27 year old Edward Smith home and drugged, strangled and dismembered him. Jeffrey tried to dry Edward's skull in the oven to preserve it, but it ended up shattering. Jeffrey's next killing did not quite fall into the pattern that he had orchestrated for himself because one day in September of 1990, 22-year-old Ernest Miller agreed to go over to Jeffrey's apartment and model in exchange for money. Jeffrey tried to drug him, but was unsuccessful because he only had two sleeping pills. And instead of strangling his victim, he slit Ernest's throat with a knife. After posing with the body and taking photographs, Jeffrey defleshed the bones and bleached Ernest's entire skeleton, which he kept intact in his apartment. Oh my God. Just don't understand just don't understand why what about having a skeleton of somebody you killed in your apartment is comforting it makes no sense whatsoever but then 22 year old david thomas was next on september 24th 1990 jeffrey drugged strangled and dismembered him in his regular fashion after david jeffrey's killings temporarily slowed during the months of failed attempts to bring men home with him then in February of 1991, he successfully lured 17-year-old Curtis Strotter over and offered to you know, pay him to take pictures of him nude. The two then had sex, and Jeffrey drugged and strangled Curtis. He photographed the process of dismembering the young man, then kept his skulls in addition to his morbid collection. Less than a month later, Earl Lindsay also fell into Jeffrey's sinister modeling trap. The 19-year-old was consequently drugged and strangled, 
Jeffrey violated his corpse, making it perform oral sex on him before dismembering it and disposing of the remains. Earl Skoll, too, became part of his growing set. Jeffrey successfully used his photography front again on May 24, 1991, to manipulate 31-year-old Tony Hughes into coming to his apartment after the two had met at a club. Relying on the same murder strategy, he drugged Tony and strangled him. He then left his body lying in his apartment for a few days before dismembering it and keeping the skull. Over time, Jeffrey had created a system in which he incapacitated victims, murdered them, then used their bodies for sexual gratification before dissolving their bones and flesh in acid. Here's a clip of him describing the process of finding the men he would kill. I go to the nightclubs, uh, drink, watch the uh, the strip tea shows, and uh, if I didn't meet anyone at the bars, I'd uh, go to the bath clubs and uh, meet meet someone there, offer them money, and we'd go back to the apartment, um, have a few drinks. I'd have the uh, the uh, sleeping pill mixture already prepared. Person would drink it, fall asleep, and uh, that's when they would be strangled. Despite committing all these murders and acts of cannibalism, it did not sufficiently fulfill his need for companionship. Jeffrey still craved a way to have a conscious living sexual partner that he could also exert total control over. It was at this point that he embarked on sadistic experiments meant to put young men into a completely submissive state of being. He confessed, I wanted to see if all this was possible to make. It sounds really gross, zombies, people who would not have a will of their own. So I started using the drilling technique. And this technique he's talking about involved drilling holes into victims' heads while they were still alive and then pouring hydrochloric acid into the openings, pretty much trying to perform lobotomies. And hydrochloric acid is going to eat away at your brain. And imagine dying that way. It's completely horrifying. And at first, when he first tried doing this, he instantly killed the person he was trying to transform into a zombie. So he tried again with a dilute acid, struggling to perfect the method through trial and error. In an interview later on, he described attempting these different ways to feel connection to the men he killed. It's just so fucked up how Jeffrey reached a point where just killing somebody was no longer enough and that he had to torture them. And I mean, I can't imagine how much pain would a drill going through your head would cause. But not only that, then getting acid poured into your head Like, I can't even fucking wrap my mind around that. What I don't understand, though, is why he did this. Because according to him, he did it because he wanted to turn them into zombies. But I feel like he's smart enough to know that drilling a hole into somebody's head and then putting hydrochloric acid into their head is not going to work. Like, he knows what acid does. He's been dissolving bodies in acid. He knows that it eats away. What did he think he was going to do if he put just barely enough in there that it was going to eat just away like a portion of the brain and that they would somehow be, I guess he thought they would be disabled by that. And once they were disabled and their memory was gone, 
hoping their memory was gone because just because somebody's disabled doesn't mean they don't remember what you just did to them, let alone the pain. And it doesn't work scientifically, like medically that doesn't work. And he had to have been smart enough to know that. So that's where I really question him doing this in the sense that he did it in order to gain control over, over somebody. Because to me, I just see sick, evil actions happening. That's all I see is him trying to up the level of pain he inflicts on his victims because strangling them and dismembering them got boring and wasn't giving him the thrill that he wanted. It's, I, I think it really came down to, he just wanted to see people suffer in pain. I agree. And he fed off that, that turned him on. And the more pain and the more destruction he could do to somebody before he killed them, the better, because that also put him in the ultimate control seat. You know, he's in the ultimate place where he's kind of playing God at this point where he has total control over it and he can slowly kill somebody or he can kill them quickly. I don't know. It's really hard to wrap your head around this idea of wanting to turn people into zombies because clearly it's not going to work. So why are you doing it other than to inflict maximum pain? I don't know. That just really fucking trips me out. But Jeffrey had hoped that this tactic would work on Conorek, the 14 year old brother of Samsak, who was the previous boy had escaped from him. Conorak, however, proved to be exceptionally resistant to Jeffrey. After being both drugged and sexually assaulted, Conorak escaped the apartment and ran into the street naked and disoriented. And on that day of May 27, 1991, 17-year-old Nicole Childress and a friend she was driving with witnessed a young boy staggering in the street and pulled over to check in on him. Nicole found him incoherent and trembling and saw blood coming from his rectum, so she called the police for help. And I'll play that 911 call because it's just fucking insane. Okay, hi. Um, this, um, I'm on 25th and State, and this is young man. He is butt naked. He has been beaten up. He is very bruised up. He can't stand. He's study fall out. He has. He is butt naked. He has no clothes on. He is really hurt. And I, you know, I ain't got no cord on him. I just seen him, and he needs some help. Where is he at? On 25th and State, the corner of 25th and State. And while she was on the phone with 911, Jeffrey came walking up. He yanked the boy to his feet in an attempt to drag him back to the apartment because obviously he's freaking the fuck out because he knows the police are going to be on the way and he could be completely exposed at this point. Nicole was suspicious and obviously super distrustful of Jeffrey and she tried to fight him away until the police and emergency medical personnel could reach the boy. The fire department arrived first and covered Conorak with a blanket. Meanwhile, Nicole waved down police officers Joseph T. Gabrish and John Balzerak who were just driving up to the scene. Jeffrey, though, spoke with both officers trying to convince them that Conorak was his adult boyfriend who had gotten drunk and wandered off. Nicole tried to warn the police that she had strong doubts about Jeffrey, but they dismissed her, telling her to butt out. Jeffrey told the officers that she had been acting crazy the whole time, and frustrated, Nicole left for just a moment to go down the street to her aunt's house and tell her what had happened. By the time she returned, everyone had left, including Conorak. Not knowing what had happened to the boy, she asked her aunt to call and check to see if he was okay or if he had been taken to the hospital. And when they had called the police back to see what had happened to the boy, the police simply told her that it had been taken care of, claiming that Konarak was intoxicated and that the whole thing was a boyfriend-boyfriend thing. And they also asserted that Konarak was an adult, despite Nicole being like, this boy was younger than me. I mean, he's 14 years old. 
the fact that the cops just like completely fucked up this especially and just sent him back with Jeffrey's absolutely insane. The police even had gone back with Jeffrey and Connor back to apartment 213 and they saw Connor's clothing and pictures of the two men together and assumed that Jeffrey was telling the truth. They're inclined to trust the word of the calm, well-spoken, attractive white young man who had repeatedly told him that he and Konarak were in a relationship and decided that they did not want to be involved in what they believed was just a lover spat. How dumb could they be? This boy was so clearly fucking underage. And they didn't even search Jeffrey's apartment at that point or even run his ID. This dude may ha- may have had warrants. He may have been person of interest in other cases that were open, but they didn't even do that much. What else is crazy is Conorak had blood coming from his rectum and what the, the police didn't question that. Uh, I just don't get that seriously though. And obviously Nicole pointed that out. So the fact that they just were like, ah, whatever, it's just a boyfriend, boyfriend situation, clearly prejudice against gay people. I mean, they didn't even want to bother with it at all because it was uncomfortable or whatever, but it's just not doing their job, not doing their job at all. Because they were clueless that Jeffrey was still on probation for sexually assaulting Konarak's brother. And most disturbingly, they were unaware that just a few hundred feet away in Jeffrey's bedroom lay the body of Tony Hughes. And yet again, Jeffrey's crimes went undetected and he would continue his serial murders. Once the officers left, Jeffrey killed Konarak by injecting acid into his head after drilling into it. He then dismembered the boy, adding a skull to the number of others he stored in his home. After this, Jeffrey's murders only accelerated more. Attempting to better hide the growing number of corpses in his apartment after his close call with law enforcement, he purchased a large barrel from a hardware store and filled it with muriatic acid to dissolve the body parts. Jeffrey's neighbor, Vernell Bass, awoke to a horrible smell one night that emanated from the apartment across the hall. Oh my God, I can't even imagine what that smell must have been like. Holy shit. Must have been so fucking disgusting. When his wife confronted Jeffrey about it the next day, he said his freezer broke and that it was meat that had just spoiled. And at that time, they believed his explanation. They're like, oh, it's just spoiled meat. Little do they know it's fucking corpses, dead bodies. Because, yeah, it was the stench of decomposition and bodies dissolving in acid. Right. And there's no way spoiled meat could cause that bad of a smell where your neighbor across the hall can smell it from within their place. Like, come on. No fucking way. Makes no fucking sense. It's just like dead bodies have a unique smell to them. Like, and I don't know that firsthand, but from what I've heard from law enforcement and and morticians and things like that, they do have a unique smell to them. And I feel like uh, the fact that they just believe that it was like dead animal meat, you know, rotting. I don't know. I guess they were just like probably not thinking that it could be humans. You know, I guess you wouldn't think that you're like, you don't assume that somebody's keeping corpses in their apartment. So between June 30th and July 15th, Jeffrey killed 20 year old Matt Turner, 23 year old Jeremiah Weinberger and 24 year old Oliver Lacey. Like so many victims before him, Matt was drugged, strangled and dismembered. Jeffrey had attempted to turn Jeremiah into one of his ideal zombified sexual partners with the drilling technique, but instead of acid, he poured boiling water into his brain. Jeremiah succumbed to a comatose state that lasted for two days before he died. Oh my God. It's it's horrific. 
boiling water. What the fuck do you think that was going to do? Both Matt and Jeremiah's heads were stored in Jeffrey's freezer after he had disposed of their corpses. When Oliver came to the apartment, he and Jeffrey had sex together before Jeffrey drugged and strangled him. Jeffrey then had sex with Oliver's body before dismembering it. He stored Oliver's head and heart in his fridge. Jeffrey claimed his last murder victim, 25-year-old Joseph Braidhoft, on July 19, 1991. After they had sex, Jeffrey drugged Joseph and strangled him to death. He placed Joseph's head in his freezer next to Matt and Jeremiah's, then stuffed the remaining body parts that he had cut up into a barrel of acid. While photographing, dismembering, and collecting body parts from his victims, Jeffrey made plans to use his artifacts to remember the men he murdered, even going so far as to plan an altar decorated for their bones to use for meditation. He literally built an altar of human skeleton remains that he killed so that he could do his little fucking rituals to make him feel better. How fucking sick. This guy clearly never has any friends and family over to his apartment. I mean, not only does he have a standing skeleton just hanging out in his house, he also has this altar with human bones. Like, what the fuck? Yeah, he definitely didn't have many visitors, that's for sure. I think one time his dad came over, and obviously he hid all of that, but he almost got caught by his dad. Because his dad noticed there was a metal box, like a lock box, in his closet. And in, and it was a large enough to fit a head in. And Jeffrey's dad asked him, hey, what's in there? Jeffrey's like, oh, uh, just magazines, like, you know, porno magazines. And Jeffrey's dad did not buy it. Because I feel like Jeffrey's dad had an inkling that something was very terribly wrong at Jeffrey's apartment. I'm sure you could just feel it. I'm sure if you went into his apartment, you could just feel the energy. I'm sure the energy was horrific. So heavy in there. I bet. Oh my God. So he asked Jeffrey, let's open the box. And Jeffrey started freaking the fuck out. He was like, oh my God, my dad's going to find out what's in the box. Cause inside of the box, he had a mummified head and a young man's genitals in it. Can you imagine what would have happened if they had opened that box? So they ended up taking the box out of the closet and then going to try to break into it. And for whatever reason, they got into a fight. Jeffrey like diverged, you know, completely started a fight with his dad to the point where they both got upset and then they just completely forgot about the box. Like he knew he had to fucking do something and he did. And again, I don't remember the exact timeline of when this happened in, in the whole you know, timeline of murders because I don't even think they exactly remember when I heard it, but just the fact that there was one point in which his dad almost found out about what his son was up to. And that would just would have been such a crazy moment, but nope, Jeffrey went undetected. His family had no fucking clue what he was doing. It's just crazy. But Jeffrey Dahmer's killing spree would finally come to an end on July 22nd, 1991 after he had taken 17 lives. That day, Jeffrey had lured 31-year-old Tracy Edwards over to his apartment to pose for money. He had run out of sleeping pills, so instead he planned to get this unsuspecting guest extremely intoxicated on alcohol. And after a few drinks, he asked Tracy if he could handcuff him for some bondage photos, in which I'm sure 
Tracy was like, uh, this is a little weird. And as soon as Jeffrey sensed any resistance from Tracy, his demeanor completely flipped and he threatened Tracy with a knife. Brandishing a blade, he asked to listen to Tracy's heartbeat, saying that when he ate the man's heart, he would become part of him forever. And he he did that a lot. He would listen to their heart because he did end up eating human hearts and he would keep them in his freezer. Knowing that his life depended on his escape, Tracy waited until Jeffrey let his guard down and then hit and kicked him before racing out of the building and down the streets. He still had handcuffs hanging from his arm as he ran away from Jeffrey's apartment. And while running down the road, he waved down some police officers and described the terrifying situation he had just experienced in Jeffrey's apartment. The police asked him to return with them to the Oxford apartments where he advised them to look for a knife in the bedroom. And when the cops arrived, they entered what appeared at first glance to be an average, relatively neat apartment. However, the place had a horrible, disgusting stench. Jeffrey was calm at first and agreed to retrieve the key for the handcuffs. And based on Tracy's description of where the knife would be located, the police went to inspect the bedroom and made a grotesque discovery. Throughout the room were over 70 Polaroid pictures showing dead bodies bound and posed in sexually explicit positions, a head in a sink, a man who is cut open from his neck to his groin, and many other scenes of post-mortem dissection. When the cops found his pictures, Jeffrey became agitated and tried to fight them off. One of the officers tackled and cuffed him. The other officer went into the kitchen and checked in the fridge. And immediately after opening the door, he let out a scream. There on the shelf was a human head with its eyes and mouth wide open. Can you fucking imagine that? That'd be terrifying. Oh my God. That's like the last thing you would expect to see. A head, eyes, oh my God. And at that point, Jeffrey was quickly arrested and taken into custody. And what followed after that were hours of uncovering evidence of Jeffrey's horrific procedures and removing the remains of 11 victims from the apartment. They found four boxes of muriatic acid, which sat on the kitchen floor. The freezer compartment contained bags filled with a heart and chunks of muscle. A separate standalone freezer held three more heads, a human torso and organs. In Jeffrey's closet, investigators found bleached skulls, two human hands, and preserved human genitals. More skulls were found in a cabinet drawer next to Jeffrey's bed. They had been painted gray. In that same cabinet, officers also found the skeleton of Ernest Miller stored whole and bags containing a dried scalp and dried genitals. A box in the middle of the bedroom held two other skulls. A total of 11 would eventually be recovered from apartment 213. The 57-gallon barrel of acid was removed from the apartment, and it held three decomposing torsos. A large hypodermic needle, a drill, a claw hammer, and a handsaw were also gathered from the scene. Once investigators were actively working on the crime scene, they instructed the neighbors to get the fuck out of the apartment building because they had just stumbled upon one of the most horrific fucking crime scenes of all time. His neighbor ended up saying how shocked and horrible it was that this guy was living across the way from him and he had no idea. A crowd gathered outside the building and watched officers carry out the containers of evidence. No one had suspected the quiet, unassuming man to have been a murderer 
especially one who would subject bodies to such heinous acts. Dennis Murphy, a detective in the homicide unit, interrogated Jeffrey after his arrest. Describing the initial encounter, Dennis said, quote, When I walked into the interview room the first time, Dahmer appeared defeated. He was disheveled from fighting with the officers. He said, Why don't you just shoot me for what I did? I said, I don't want to shoot you. I don't want to hurt you. Then he said, But what I did, you guys would be famous. He knew the it was over. And I think he full fully thought that he was going to be either killed by police or he knew his death was coming soon at that point. I mean, he that's the thing is the fact that he said that just shows he knew this entire time what he was doing was wrong. He knew that he was going to face the ultimate penalty for this because obviously it's just unspeakable what he did. But Dennis interviewed Jeffrey for 66 hours during which Jeffrey confessed and divulged details about each of his killings. Based on Jeffrey's account of his first murder carried out in Bath, investigators searched the area behind the property in Ohio just over a week later and recovered hundreds of bone fragments, including teeth, as well as a necklace that were all later identified belonging to Stephen Hicks. Then on January 30th, 1992, Jeffrey's trial for the 15 murders he committed in Milwaukee began. The case created racial tension in the community as most of Jeffrey's victims had been black men and only one black juror was chosen to serve. The fact that most of the people that Jeffrey killed were also part of the gay community seemed for many to show that law enforcement discriminatorily chose not to take appropriate action to potentially save their lives. The apparent negligence of the police, demonstrated by the many times they failed to intervene and stop the murderer, suggested that they did not take proper care to defend the men that Jeffrey targeted. 100% the police failed. When pictures collected from Jeffrey's apartment confirmed that Konarak was one of the serial killer's victims, the public became outraged over the fact that the police had returned the 14-year-old boy back into the hands of Jeffrey Dahmer without properly investigating, despite the strong protests of the witnesses who found Konarak wandering in the street. The two officers who had taken Konarak back to apartment 213 were fired, but were later given their jobs back. What the fuck? That doesn't make any sense. Shit is fucking broken, man. Criminal justice system is such a joke. Although his lawyers recommended that he plead innocent, Jeffrey pled that he was guilty but insane at the time he committed the crimes. And if the court approved his insanity plea, he'd be sent to a psychiatric facility instead of prison and would be able to request parole every six months. And Jeffrey's father supported the case for insanity, believing that the best place for Jeffrey would be a facility where he could receive treatment from mental health professionals. He is convinced that his son was genuinely remorseful for what he did. According to Jeffrey's father, Lionel, who harbored constant guilt over the fact that he did not figure out what had truly been going on with his son, quote, I always wanted the best for Jeff. Always. I just hoped against hope he would improve or talk about things and get things straightened out, whatever it is that's bothering him. Which I'm like, you didn't try very hard. What the fuck? Like, if you really wanted to know what was going on with your son, maybe you should fucking talk to him. Try to fucking go over to his apartment unsuspectingly and see what he's up to. None of that. Very true. I have a hard time with Lionel. I must say I have a very hard time with Lionel and, you know, 
I think he's coming from a good place ultimately, but I think he just really failed as a parent and just the fact that he did not know what was going on with him and they didn't talk. Je- Jeffrey said himself, he's like, we never talked. We never talked on a deep level. It was always superficial surface level conversation. And he never felt like he could talk to his father on a deep level where they could actually connect and share how he's actually feeling. Cause I bet you anything, if he had had that communication with his father and that level of comfort and trust with his father, I bet you anything Jeffrey Dahmer would have told his father about murdering Stephen Hicks probably way back when he did it. And potentially if Lionel had just tried a little bit harder and try to build that trust with his son who he's known has struggled his whole life. So the fact that he keeps being like, if only, if only it's like you had his whole life to try to be there for him and try to help him with his issues and open, let him open up to you. And you just never did that. So I have a hard time for him, you know, when it's too late trying to come and be like, Oh, I'm so sorry that, you know, it turned out like this, but Jeff's remorseful. Really? Really, Lionel? I agree with that. And especially how Jeffrey never had like a best friend or any close friends whatsoever in his entire life. I would think Lionel would be there for him and be his best friend because he should have known that he needed that the whole time. Yeah, it's a little too late, Lionel. I mean, he's trying to come now after the fact and be like, oh, I had no idea. And and trying to be like, my boy's still a good boy. He just, he didn't even believe it for a while. I mean, Lionel didn't even believe what Jeffrey had done. Even though Jeffrey confessed to everything. Jeffrey just, once he got caught, he was like, I got to let it all go. It's going to free me. And it did. It, it gave him some sense of peace when he was able to just fucking get it all out there of everything he did. All the things that he'd been keeping inside of him and really reveal who he truly was. And I think that was ultimately what he wanted. I mean, ultimately, Jeffrey just wanted to be fucking noticed by somebody and and felt like somebody gave a shit about him and nobody fucking did. So he went down this perverse, dark path that he really, really struggled with. And obviously, there's something much stronger there that's causing the urges and the compulsion that he talks about. But Lionel really fucking... Just dropped the. I mean, I don't even know how to fucking say it. He dropped the ball, man. I mean, he dropped the ball as a father, and he tries to act like they were fucking close. And it's like you weren't close. You were you. He fooled all of you. He didn't tell you guys anything. He clearly didn't think your guys' relationship was that good. And plus, they were religious and and judgmental about his sexuality. So Jeffrey was like, "Not going to tell you guys anything." And yeah, I mean, you see that way too often where parents of, of people that are gay and, you know, aren't accepting are judgmental and bad things happen sometimes, you know, or hurt happens to those individuals and they harbor all that hurt and resentment. And yeah, sometimes it can end up really bad. But Lionel and his second wife, Sherry were present every day during Jeffrey's trial. And in court, the victim's families delivered impact statements expressing the terrible pain and sorrow that the murders had caused. Yeah, there's a couple moments in court where Jeffrey's getting fucking laid into by some of the victims' families, and rightfully so. I mean, good God. I can't even imagine being the victims' families, having to think about how your loved one, your son, died at the hands of this monster. I mean, it's literally the worst 
possible fucking things you can think of. It's just horrific. But after only a two-week-long trial, the jury was persuaded by the prosecution's argument, and on February 15, 1992, after roughly 10 hours of deliberation, they found Jeffrey to be sane and guilty on all murder charges. He was then sentenced to 15 consecutive life terms totaling 957 years. At the end of his sentencing hearing, Jeffrey was allowed to make a final statement, and we'll play that now. Your Honor, it is over now. This has never been a case of trying to get free. I didn't ever want freedom. Frankly, I wanted death for myself. This was a case to tell the world that I did what I did not for reasons of hate. I hated no one. I knew I was sick or evil or both. Now I believe I was sick. The doctors have told me about my sickness and now I have some peace. I know how much harm I have caused I tried to do the best I could after the arrest to make amends, but no matter what I did, I could not undo the terrible harm I have caused. My attempt to help identify the remains was the best that I could do, and that was hardly anything. I feel so bad for what I did to those poor families, and I understand their rightful hate. I know I will be in prison for the rest of my life. I know that I will have to turn to God to help me get through each day. I should have stayed with God. I tried and failed and created a holocaust. Thank God there will be no more harm that I can do. I believe that only the Lord Jesus Christ can save me from my sins. Based on that final statement, it's very hard to wrap your head around the fact that he is showing remorse. He does understand what he did and the pain he caused. And he's taking ownership and responsibility for all of the heinous things that he did. And I mean, I'm I'm like, okay, that's great. Good for you. Glad you're taking responsibility for the monstrous acts you committed. But at the end of the day, it's not, it doesn't do anybody any good and it's not providing comfort to the, to the families. In fact, I think it makes it worse when somebody like this goes and tries to play, like kind of try to make themselves a victim and make you feel sorry for them because of the situation that they're in. And I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. I mean, that's great. If that's, if Jeffrey needs that, that's great. But if, if our victim family and what I saw from those victims families that they were like, fuck you, fuck you, dude, we hope you burn in hell because what does that do? What does an apology do after he's just fucking dismembered and murdered and eaten fucking 17 people? There's no coming back from that. Honestly, he shouldn't even been given a right to speak. That's how I feel about it. What do you think? I definitely agree with you on that. The fact that Jeffrey was showing remorse during the trial and showing everybody that he was wrong and apologizing for all of his actions. What I don't get about that, though, is it shows to me that he knew what he was doing was wrong from his very first victim. I mean, he's a smart guy. He he grew up with good parents who had good morals and values. So the fact that he might've known what he was doing the whole time was wrong, but he didn't care the entire time until he got caught. To me, it just shows he was only apologizing during the trial for his own self benefit to maybe try and get a less harsh of a sentence 
or anything around those lines. That's just kind of what I feel about the trial and, and how he was approaching it. Well, let's not forget that he tried to plead insanity, which means you are, he wanted to go to a mental institution, which to me, he's just looking out for himself, right? He's done this day, you know, day year in, day after out. year, year yeah. after year. I mean, he, Jeffrey is only looking out for Jeffrey at the end of the day. Cause that's, that's how he's lived his entire life. He's had never had anybody have his back. So Jeffrey's always looking out for Jeffrey's best interest. And that's all that was, is just to make himself feel better. Mm -hmm. And it just proves the point, though, that he was never insane, and he was completely sane. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was having urges to do something or having temptation to do something, and instead of fighting it and trying to find alternative routes around it, he fucking gave into it until the point where it just consumed him completely, and he lost complete control. Even though he was controlling all these other people, he lost complete control over himself because he completely lost himself. He got lost in this fucking fantasy world he was in where he's, it's just him and a bunch of fucking zombies walking around. He got completely lost in this whole process. And at the end of the day, when it really came down to it, he was only looking out for himself when he's apologizing. He doesn't care about the victims. He doesn't care about the families. He doesn't care about what he did. It's about making himself feel good. And at least he put that out there and, you know, he can go to jail feeling like he got some closure. You know, he's getting some closure by apologizing for what he did. And plus he knows his parents. He's now disappointed his parents and he doesn't want to lose his parents. So he's going to make himself look remorseful and sorry so that he makes his parents happy too. Cause that's all he's got left. Otherwise he's going to be alone in prison and nobody's going to come visit him. So I think he did it for himself and his parents most likely. But Jeffrey was sent to Columbia Correctional Institution in Wisconsin to serve out his sentence. And in May, Jeffrey was charged by the state of Ohio for the murder of Stephen Hicks, which he pled guilty to as well. And he was given another life sentence on top of those he was already serving, bringing his total up to 16 life sentences. That same year, the Oxford Apartments at 924 North 25th Street, where the police made the horrific and now notorious discovery of Jeffrey's carnage was torn down. Yeah, I don't know how anybody would ever live in that apartment complex yeah. again, knowing that fucking all that happened. But after being locked up, Jeffrey often wished for his own death as a regular expression of his remorse for the killings. Yeah, because that's the easy way out. And this is the most crazy fucking part of this. Once he went to jail, Jeffrey turned to religion, and his father had sent him religious books, and texts, and he actually got baptized in prison and became what's called a born again Christian. Which this is the this is like one of the biggest fucking things and issues I have with Christianity. And no offense to anybody that's a Christian out there, I'm not saying that everybody is like this. And this is my personal opinion on my personal experience with Christianity. But this this has always drove me insane that somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer, according to the Christian faith. If you give, you know, become a born again Christian and get baptized, then you have sealed your ticket into heaven. Right. If you're genuine about it, which I mean, maybe he wasn't genuine about, but if you do those things, according to the Christian religion, you get to go to heaven. So you're telling me that a fucking monster like Jeffrey Dahmer is going to go to heaven with all the other good people that are in heaven and all the other godly people that live their whole lives according to Christ in the Bible. 
the at the pearly gates, Jeffrey Dahmer's knocking on the doors, and God's gonna say, "Welcome, Jeffrey Dahmer. Come on in. Come on." I mean, that's just that just doesn't make sense to me at all. It doesn't make sense to me either. On after everything that he's done, how he got baptized, he somehow turned to the Christian faith, he repented his sins. I just don't understand how a God could accept that and ex- accept his past and how horrifying and how much pain he's inflicted on others and allow him in to heaven or what that, you know, what they believe in. Something I will never understand. I just won't. And I'm sure that it's a hard question to answer. And I know any, you know, I've asked some pastors some very difficult questions like that. And even they don't have an answer to that because, you know, there's, I mean, I know what the answer is. I know what they would tell me, but it's all based upon belief and faith. But anyway, this is not about religions, but let's get back to the story. So when Jeffrey goes to prison, he's a Christian, you know, he's, he's trying to mind his business. He's in solitary, I believe for a while, because when he did go out into the general population, he was a target of violence and hate from other inmates. Because you can imagine that this this blew up. Like his trial and his arrest was like huge news, worldwide news, because it was just so appalling that the whole world had to hear about it. So he was infamous at this point, and obviously having killed a bunch of different people and black people and Hispanic people and Asian people, that when you get to prison. And, and white people too. But when you get to prison, that's not going to sit well with a lot of people. And the fact that he dismembered people and all that, that's public knowledge. So prison was not a good place for Jeffrey. And even though the prison did try to keep him away from the general population, Jeffrey requested that he be moved to a unit where he could have more interaction with other prisoners. And that did not work out so well for him. On one occasion, fellow inmate Osvaldo Duruthi cut Jeffrey's neck with a hidden razor while he was walking back to his cell. And although Osvaldo intended to slit his throat open, Jeffrey only received superficial wounds and was able to recover. On November 28, 1994, Jeffrey was assigned to clean a bathroom with fellow inmates Jesse Anderson and Christopher Scarver. Christopher had snuck in a metal bar from the prison weight room when he went to his assigned work duty. And after the guards left him alone, he cornered Jeffrey and beat him over the head with the bar. He then attacked Jesse in a similar manner, and when the guards found the bludgeoned prisoners 20 minutes later, they were both still alive. However, Jeffrey died from head trauma on the way to the hospital, and Jesse passed away a few days later. Christopher later explained that his motivation was strong disdain for the serial killer and the nature of his crimes. He portrayed a very different image of Jeffrey from the remorseful Christian who regretted committing his crimes. Christopher claimed that Jeffrey would taunt other inmates by shaping the prison food to look like limbs and that he added fake blood splatters with ketchup packets. He further believed that the guards had purposely permitted the attack to occur when they left the three inmates alone. Christopher struggles with his own mental health that contributed to him committing homicide and thus landing him in the same prison as Jeffrey. He said that after he had lost his job and started drinking heavily, he heard voices calling him the son of God. He then went on to kill his former boss during a robbery. And while incarcerated, he reported delusions and was evaluated by medical staff over 10 times. After killing Jeffrey, he was transferred between prisons before his permanent relocation at the Centennial Correctional Facility in Canyon City, Colorado. Jeffrey's mother, Joyce, later said of her son's murder, quote, If he'd have had a choice, he'd have let this happen to him. 
I always asked if he was safe, and he'd say, It doesn't matter, Mom. I don't care if something happens to me. Now is everybody happy? Now that he's bludgeoned to death, is that good enough for everyone? He didn't care. And the fact that he was... And it just proves the point. The the Christian thing's just all an act in order to fucking get remorse from whoever himself or his parents. Because even in prison interviews that that they have out there on YouTube, Jeffrey even said that when asked if he still had urges to, you know, kill and commit sexual assault and do all that heinous shit, he still said he struggled with it. So he never changed. It was just all an act. But according to his wishes, Jeffrey's body was cremated and the ashes split between his mother and father. However, Joyce requested his brain be preserved and studied in an attempt to identify the biological factors that contributed to Jeffrey's homicidal impulses. Lionel protested and said it should be cremated as well. But after the brain was saved and stored in formaldehyde for a few months after Jeffrey's body was cremated, a judge finally ruled in favor of Lionel's request and ordered it to be cremated as well. I mean, I don't know what you're going to be able to derive from his brain at that point. I mean, I guess you could look at it and see if there's some type of physical trauma to it. But I mean, I how, what are you going to be able to do with it? There can't be that much you could do. But that's pretty much the end of Jeffrey Dahmer after he was murdered in prison. That was that was it. And I guess that probably brought some peace and closure to the victim's families. I can imagine it probably was felt better to them that he was not walking this earth anymore. But at the end of the day, I mean, the the trauma that he caused, the destruction that he caused, that's always going to be there. And obviously, they're never going to forget the ones that were lost, and neither are we. The last thing I wanted to mention, though, that is very bizarre about Jeffrey Dahmer is that even though the guy was gay, he had a lot of ladies that took a liking to him while he was in prison. And they kind of became like the serial killer groupies. There's actually a term for them called hybristophilia, which is defined as a person who is attracted to men who commit extreme crimes such as rape and murder. And some of Dahmer's groupies make crafts and jewelry as a tribute to him, as well as many others, and they sell it online. There's actually Jeffrey Dahmer jewelry on Etsy, I believe. So that to me is just the weirdest thing that there's like, Women that are fascinated with him, even though he was gay and even though he fucking was a monster, yet he still had people that liked him. I don't know what it is. I think it's this kind of weird idea of and concept of him being such a out there individual that you can't help but be fascinated by him, which, which I understand to some extent. Like Obviously, we're covering this because it's very interesting to talk about this and learn about this, but I don't understand this, you know, desire to want to be liked by somebody like this or to be attracted to somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer. That just doesn't make any sense to me. But with that being said, we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the lights out podcast. If you did definitely let us know, give us a thumbs up, make sure you follow us and subscribe on iTunes and Spotify as well as YouTube. Definitely want to check this out on YouTube because there's a lot of stuff uh, you'll either want to see or you won't want to see but we'll be putting that up as well. But definitely let us know what you guys think about Jeffrey Dahmer. What do you think was the primary motivator for him doing all of these horrible acts? What do you think was really driving him? Do you think there was something genetic going on? Do you think perhaps he had a mental disorder? Perhaps it was just he was crazy? Let us know what you think. Maybe he's evil, possessed by some type of demonic 
entity even i mean let us know i'm curious to see what what you guys think about jeffrey dahmer and what you think about you know what really drove him to become this absolute monster but we'll go ahead and leave it there thanks again for joining us for lights out we will see you guys next week lights out everybody season again and meundies is here to help you go home for the holidays with their most comfortable and festive holiday collection yet gift some me time with super soft gifts that will guarantee a thank you card so thoughtful it'll bring a tear to your eye with their new holiday prints and styles celebrating with everyone you love just got a whole lot more fun from undies and cozy socks to pj sets and plush robes meundies has something for everyone on your list Share the good cheer with your partner or family with matching sets. No matter what you choose, surround yourself and your loved ones with comfort this holiday season. And if you need more inspiration, check out their holiday gift guide for ideas that are more snug than a hug. Get 15% off your first order, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee at MeUndies.com cozy time. That's MeUndies.com cozy time.